Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 70 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 70, it's amazing that we're in at like 70, 70. That's a lot of podcasts, but not yet 100. But we're on our way. Uh, in this episode 70 of Inside Quizzing, we are going to be doing a continuation of what we did two episodes ago, where we basically dived into what Scott and I considered to be the worst quizzing rules. And so we're just going to be continuing into that. And we're going to also be measuring how much we dislike these rules on the take umbrage scale between one and 10, where one is a small amount of umbrage that we're taking and 10 is maximal takeage of umbrages uh, in terms of units of umbrage. Uh, taken by either Scott or myself or both. And of course, we'll debate and discuss and so forth. But before we get into that, I wanted to provide a quick announcement about PNW quizzing uh, that was actually just from this morning. Uh, so we're recording this on Monday, the 27th of July. So we announced for our 2020-2021, well, let's say that a lot, 2020-2021 season, uh, is going to be Matthew, of course, uh, in this uh, year or season's rotation. We, uh, the well, the board of directors met on Saturday, uh, the 25th, down in uh, Portland, uh, Troutdale Airport, and we tried to discern and figure out what was going to be best for organizing uh, quizzing in the season. Of course, we all want to resume in-person quizzing as much as possible, as soon as possible. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're sort of still in that antivirus uh, response state in terms of uh, government policies uh, and so forth that we need to comply with. So, we are going to do, and this is all on the website um, in terms of, you know, the details and so forth, but just in quick summary, we are going to be doing the first set of meets of the season virtually. Now, what does that mean in terms of number of meets? We have no idea. Uh, we definitely know the first, you know, preseason meet is going to be virtual. We are pretty confident the first regular district meet is going to be a virtual and of course, as we progress further and further through the season, we just get more and more ambiguity and we have no idea when it's going to stop being virtual and become in-person. But as soon as we can conduct an in-person meet, we will. Uh, we're going to follow the quiz meet schedule as published for the season. All of that is on the, the website. And uh, in contrast to the virtual meets that we did at the latter uh, portion of last season, uh, the virtual meets will actually count toward uh, overall averages for both team and individual. They are we're going to be maintaining the same weighting structure that we normally do, which means the earlier meets of the year count far less than the latter meets in terms of qualifying for um, uh, Great West or inter and or international. So all of that stuff remains the same. So ultimately. You know, uh, virtual meets will count uh, for a very small percentage overall relative to in-person meets. And then, of course, we'll ju we're just going to switch over to in-person as soon as policy allows us to do so, but not prior. Now, all of the details of this and a lot more information is available on the pnwquizzing.org website. So I encourage everybody to take a look at that. All right, so diving back in to the worst quizzing rules ever, I want to quickly reintroduce the idea. We are uh, engaged in a sort of self-critical examination of quizzing, and so while Scott may and I may bring 
um, and actually not may, we will bring certain levels of umbrage. We are doing this because we both love Bible quizzing and we have a certain amount of love for the rule book, which means we hate the warts and the blemishes uh, therein. And so for each of these things, we will, uh, each of these topics of, of worst quizzing rules, we will introduce the idea, talk a little bit about it, explain, maybe debate, depending upon if we have different differences of, of opinion and where things are. And then we will rate them on the take umbrage scale between one and 10. So the first one, just to kind of throw, throw this out there, is uh, unique words. Uh, so unique words, of course, are unique. They exist only once in the entire material in CBQZ and eventually in QuizSage when that gets done, hopefully fairly soon. These words almost. are, yeah, almost, uh, they are, uh, they are displayed in blue. Oh, that's true. That's right. Because a, a word can happen twice in the same verse and it's still considered unique. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, good, good call. Um, so those words are marked in CBQZ and quiz sage in blue. Uh, and so that's when, whenever, whenever you see, you know, in, in either the markup material on CBQZ or, or wherever else, if you see a blue word, that's a unique word. Um, we are required by the rule book as quiz masters to require you as quizzers to say those unique words in your answer. Uh, and of course, dot, 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 why? Dot, dot, dot. Why is this the case? Um, so, Scott, do you have some background on this one? I do. I think that this was talked about at length during uh, 2016 internationals at Spokane, and I was there for this conversation. And um, I now know that the basis, the kind of the reason that this was done is not a good reason, which is to kind of force quiz masters into some sort of consistency or quality level. But the reason was um, it is currently so subjective what constitutes a correct answer or information being enough to rule a quiz or correct. So can we try to move it slightly more towards the objective end of the spectrum by requiring unique words? And there was extensive discussion had over, well, there is some percentage of unique words, I don't know if it's 10% or 35% or whatnot, that aren't that significant. They just happen to occur only once. And do we really want to be requiring words that don't carry tons of meaning? And the decision was, we acknowledge this, but we think the pros of some more consistency and objectivity in Quizmaster's ruling on a, what constitutes a correct answer and you know complete information is a bigger pro than the con of requiring a seemingly inconsequential word some percentage of the time. Wow. Now I'm super depressed. So, okay. Okay. So I love the desire to make rulings more objective because I, I dislike sub subjectivity in rulings. I dislike subjectivity in the rule book. I would very much like to have more objective universal sort of things. The problem is unique words then become somewhat arbitrary like in terms of like you're you're taking a a small percentage of the material i mean it's got to be i don't know exactly what it is but yeah it's got to be like 10 or 15 percent and you're just saying arbitrarily these words must be word perfect um and not synonyms that just that's i don't know that's just bizarre it seems to me there needs to be a much more objective general rule that applies to all words, not just to words that can be, you know, literally the unique word there, especially if the word is the, which of course wouldn't happen, but theoretically you can have an extraordinarily unimportant. Well, 
I don't know, every word in scripture is important, but you know what I mean, relatively random mm. word being unique. And that's just bizarre. Well, I will attempt to be difficult here. And I think any time you try to define correct or complete information in an objective manner, isn't it going to be somewhat arbitrary what you pick, whether it's a unique word or a unique phrase or the length of the unique phrase or um, a proper noun or a non-article, like whatever you choose will be arbitrary to some degree, right? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And and I don't like that. Um, and I'd like to try to move away from it, but it, and it may not be possible to move, you know, entirely to objectivism, you know, in, in that, in that regard. And I, and I begrudgingly accept that truism uh, about quizzing. But what seems weird to me is the unique words thing doesn't actually solve the problem. It actually just... N- it leaves the problem because, you know, 85, 90%, whatever of the words are not unique words. And therefore you're, you, you, you know, 80 to 85 to 90% of the problem, if of, of whatever that problem was still exists and is not covered by the unique words rule and the unique words rule is bizarro. So like before you explain this history, like my umbrage scale, I was going to be like a two or maybe a three on my unbridged scale, but because of understanding the rationality, like my umbrage is going up. Like I feel like I, I feel like my umbrage is like a five now. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know that everyone was like wholly unsatisfied with the consistency and quality level between quiz masters, but there was some desire to just move it slightly more towards objective. And the fact that it was not a hundred percent objective was not a concern or a goal at all. Yeah, I think there's just a better there's there's so much better ways of doing it, right? Like get your quiz masters to communicate with each other on a routine regular basis, have them confer and argue and debate about rulings amongst themselves, and you will generally start to, you know, iron sharpens iron. Quiz masters will start to become more consistent with each other. I mean, in P&W, I mean, we've got a bunch of nerd quiz masters, you know, uh myself included, and we love arguing and debating and and sharpening each other over you know the these sort of edge case rulings and figuring out would we count that as correct or incorrect and how would we interpret this and so forth and by having those conversations we get better and better quality uh quiz masters better and better in quality uh rulings that are increasingly more consistent and i i would say do a far better job of consistency than requiring unique words to actually be word perfect. Sure, but I think um, this is largely the way that changes to the rulebook have happened over a decade or more, which is it might be one or a few people have a passion about something and propose a rule that is evaluated in a relatively small group of people and maybe talked about in a group at internationals with whoever just happens to be there. And then a change happens to the rule book, um, as more or less a bandaid, right? I think that what you are proposing would be far more effective in the long term, but is not ever considered, um, possible in the short term and is never sought as um, a path forward. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you that there's a lot of band-aids, in the existing rule book. Uh, it feels like, uh, you know, every page has a, a few of them. Yeah. And I was on a, a rule book subcommittee at one point, which included one CQLT member. And then, um, it was four other people from various districts between the U S and Canada. And it was kind of weird to me because 
I thought that we were just kind of an established committee, but in reality, we were just kind of a group of people talking about the rule book and then proposing changes, which had to be verified, like not verified, like approved by, I believe the CQLT, which was weird to me. Cause if you're going to like say here are a group of people and your dedicated job is to improve, make changes, listen to feedback, what have you, but then we're going to let some other people approve it that, are not digging in as deep. And then we conclu- we um, we did a bunch of work and then um, didn't meet for a while. And then I don't know if it was six months or nine months later, I brought back a bunch of other changes to the group and then kind of realized that we had been a one-time non-perpetual thing and that to make any further changes, we would almost have to re-ask to be a committee again. Um, and so I think any sort of dedicated rules committee group that has... I don't need them to have complete autonomy, but um, kind of s- some some championing or deputizing by whoever is putting together this committee saying, like, we want to put a ton of weight into these this committee and what they are proposing. And unless something that they're proposing is not wanted by every single district or a majority of districts or something, we'll go with what they say. Um, so it was kind of a weird experience where we didn't really have authority, but we're doing work to make changes. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of why you, you you won't see any kind of large overhauls of the rule book because every little thing kind of gets picked apart by one group, but then sent to approval to one or more other groups. And it's just hard to um, have any sort of whole scale change. And that's why I think you do see band-aids all over the place. Um, but I will sneak in a worst rule that, that arose out of this because I don't know if it probably was Jeremy who brought this up because he was present, but he said, um, actually, I don't want to say that he said all this. Um, he brought up that in the book of John, the contraction I'm, I apostrophe M is a unique word because almost everywhere in John, it says I am, um, and not as a contraction. And so I think the discussion was had that if we are now saying unique words are required, we're kind of elevating them in importance. And we want to make sure that unique words are not elevated importance in importance to the degree that a quizzer is saying any unique word that is out of context is automatic grounds for being counted out of context. And a good example was that I am by Jeremy, right? If a quizzer doesn't like just kind of slurs I am and says I am, you know, will the quiz master just be like, haha, you're out of context for saying a, a unique word. And so that's why the rule was added to the rule book that says... A quizzer cannot automatically be ruled out of context by a single word, even if it is a unique word. And that is something I have extreme umbrage with because while the intent behind it is is very good, right? We don't want to like catch the quizzer out of context for saying something very inconsequential, but that just happens to be a unique word. It is now having to be applied in cases that we've discussed at length on the podcast of a sequence of words that are the same and then a unique word or a single word that puts the quizzer in one verse, but because it's only one word different, this single word kind of clause has to be invoked, um, which is was never the intent, right? It's The intent was never, oh, a quizzer says f- the first five words of a finish the verse question, four of which are the same as the verse that they should be in, but the fifth of which is different, um, and those five words start a different verse. Well, we kind of want to call them out of context, but this clause kind of makes it impossible or difficult. Um, which is an unintended consequence um, of probably a good intention, but a poorly um, written clause in the rulebook. Yes, indeed. All right, well, let's move on. What do you have next? 
Let's see. Okay, determining reference word or phrase. This one is kind of a, a fun one, if I can say that. Um, let me find the part in the rule book. This is for reference questions, and it is in um, the question types section of the rulebook under reference questions, and this is on page 20. In the question that the quizzer gives, the quizzer needs to have the determining word or phrase from the quizzer's card. And then this bullet D goes on to say, in the 50-50 example, what men and lawless men, the questions are not similar, which I'm not sure if it is supposed to pertain to this determining word or phrase bullet or not. It is under the same bullet, but it talks about the questions being not similar, and it doesn't say the questions do not contain the determining word or phrase. Um, and so I don't know what determining word or phrase means. Uh, if I wrote the question, uh, the chapter verse reference question, the man who has what, and the quizzer gives the question, the man who what, did they miss a determining word or phrase has? What if they forgot? What if they left out the the and said, "Man, who has what?" Is the the determining word or phrase? You know, is the determining word or phrase the word that causes it to be like only a CVR and not a CR or a CR and not an interrogative? I just have, I have no idea what this means. I think in the example about fifty-fifty, it's saying that those questions aren't similar. So in a pure fifty-fifty, I know how to rule. Right? We're we are making the quizzer guess correct the first time. Um, but in all other cases, I have no idea how to, to um, interpret and apply determining word or phrase. So just looking at the rule book, I, my umbrage level might be an 8 because it makes no sense and I don't know how to apply it and it's kind of useless. Um, but in an actual sense, because I don't know how to apply it, I just don't, which kind of makes my umbrage level 0. Well, I would say your umbrage level really is an eight, but it's like, it's so bad you can't apply it. Therefore, practically, even though you have an umbrage level of eight, it sort of doesn't hurt quizzing. Exactly. Right. And in general, like, sure, my umbrage level might be some parts, how much do I personally hate it? Right. But I try to have my umbrage level be tied to a lot with how does it affect quizzing and incentives to memorize and identifying the most studied and best executing quizzers, you know? And so to me, if this doesn't affect any of that at all, then my umbrage level is going to be pretty low. Yeah. I think I, I share the eight level with you. I think I, in practice, it doesn't necessarily go to zero for me because it is entirely possible a quiz master could have an interpretation of what determining word or phrase means that is hyper different than I don't know, and therefore I have to ignore it. And depending upon what that interpretation means, it could mean that their room is going to be ruling, the, the rulings from their room is going to be very, very different than mine or yours. And so for me, you know, like that, that pushes the umbrage level back up to, to eight, I think in general. Sounds good. All right. Well, my next one is overall. And of course, again, we, we always hurt the ones we love. I love the rule book, but I also hate the rule book. Um, so the, the next one for me is poor organization, just sort of general in the rule book. And this kind of lends itself to what we already talked about before. The fact that the rule book is, um, you know, it, at some point in the past, I think it stopped being 
sort of rewritten from a clarity perspective and switched to more band-aid approach. And uh, in terms of like, we, we have a, sp a one-off case here and here and here that need to be patched. And we're going to write a phrase that kind of patches those changes rather than actually sort of systemically looking at, is there a larger way to reorganize this? Is this, is this a concept that applies in multiple scenarios that we can draw out from one, you know, instead of being in one particular location, we can draw it out conceptually. And so as a result, the cruft level, uh, the spaghetti nature of the rule book has increased uh, over time. More than that, there's also things in the rule book that are actually not rules at all and shouldn't therefore be in the rule book. They should actually be in other documents. We shouldn't, we shouldn't think of the rule book as like the one quizzing document to rule them all and in the darkness bind them, but rather the rule book is a, a book of rules, right? Um, if you're having governance policies, the governance policies should be in a governance policies document, right? If you're going to have, say, a mission statement, the mission statement should be in a mission statement document, right? Like, and arguably reading the mission statement that's currently in the rule book anyway, I, I honestly think the mission statement is is wrong anyway. I, I don't believe we actually, I, I think it's too vague um, and it's not what we actually do anyway. Uh, I think a much better mission statement, a much more accurate mission statement is to get the most number of, of uh, quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, uh, period. Um, and the Holy Spirit does all of the awesome stuff as a result of, of, of that process. But I, I think anyway, but whatever, even if you agree with the mission statement as it's currently worded, it shouldn't be in the rule book. Um, there are things other that, you know, in the CQLT is defined and structured in the rule book. It shouldn't be. Um, scholarships is, is a section in the rule book. It should not be in the rule book. It has nothing to do with rules. Um, right. The idea of like, Differences between district quizzing policies and zone quizzing and so forth. These should be different documents for, say, a district program, right? So, you know, a district program wants to have an amendment to uh, the rule book for their own district. Great. Go ahead and do that and have it as a separate document. Um, it should, there shouldn't be reference to that uh, within the actual rule book. The rule book itself should be just rules. The other thing is it's not well organized in terms of what I would call layers of information, right? So I think there's really kind of two ways to uh, information architect a document, right? There is the architecture of the hierarchy in terms of keeping a vertical normalized intellectual structure, conceptual structure, right? So having the idea of um, either, you know, maybe you can structure the rules chronologically. I don't think that exactly works in quizzing, but you can generally think of certain things happening chronologically in quizzing. And so that's one way of organizing the rule book. You can slice it a different particular way, but picking one of those vectors and sticking with it overall is a good idea. That's sort of the one form of architecture, but a second form of architecture are layers where a layer is kind of, you could think of it as a, um, a certain level of, of abstraction around the concepts that you're dealing with, right? And so I would propose the idea of at one layer, so call it layer one, you have the rule itself, 
which is something that's bare minimum. It's bare steel. It's, it's minimalistic and it's, you know, it's almost like you're reading the U.S. Constitution. Simple, right? Very, very tiny, uh, and very, very clear, right? Then sort of the next layer from that is an explanation and Another layer beyond that might be examples, and another layer beyond that might be commentary, right? And all of these things are useful, right? So especially if I, if I've never experienced quizzing before, I would probably want to see, and actually I would probably want to read a rule book that had all four of these layers together. Uh, so I would read a rule, I would read some about the explanations, I would see some examples, I would maybe even read some commentary about the rule and about the explanations and about the examples and so forth, right? Um, but then as a quiz master, I very much don't want any of those things. I just want the bare metal rule. Uh, I want to be able to look things up very quickly. I want a very small rule book that I can reference very rapidly in the moment. And then if I'm, if I'm reading a particular rule and I say to myself, Ooh, actually, you know what? I'm, I'm not super clear in my mind about that. Let's see if there's an example that relates to my, you know, current scenario. There isn't. Let's check the commentary. You know, there's, I want to be able to dive into those layers as a quiz master, but not have to wade through them unless I, I've located a spot in the specific rule layer where I'm like, okay, now I want to, to, to dive into that, right? Now you can do this and that this seems fairly complicated. You can actually do this fairly simply with, uh, even just in a Word document or a PDF with, uh, certain types of formatting and structure around both the content and the architecture and the design of the document. But I, you can also do this programmatically as well. And, and a combination of these two things, the, the problem that, that, I see in the current rulebook is that really no attempt has been made, uh, you know, lately uh, to have a good document architecture, information architecture throughout the entire document. It's really sort of like, let's keep adding things. Let's, let's keep band-aiding things. And ultimately, I think what that, that leads us into deeper and deeper problems with the rulebook that can really only be resolved by saying, okay, Let's freeze the functional equivalence of the rule book and let's reorganize it in a uh, much more architected, intelligent way, uh, stripping away things from the rule book and put them, putting them in, into other documentation that aren't actually about the rules, um, which doesn't lessen those things. It actually causes those things to stand out more, right? So have your mission statement be in a mission statement document, which actually adds weight to the value of your mission statement and similar with scholarships and similar with CQLT and, you know, governance policies and whatever else that you want to have. And I think it, it actually improves all of these things to be well organized that way. So for me, I, I see this as really at the root of so much that I have frustrations with in the rule book. And it's a limiting factor tremendously for quizzing, right? I, I, I think it's very difficult to take somebody who's never seen quizzing, who's never experienced quizzing. It's, it's virtually impossible to hand them the rule book and say, go and have them be able to make heads or tails, uh, tails of it. Right. Um, you, they basically have to sort of experience quizzing and then they kind of like, Oh, now I get it. And then they go back to the rule book and kind of fill in the blanks, uh, sort of thing. 
I, I think quizzing is hobbled by the current rulebook when instead I think a reorganized rulebook could actually be a huge asset to the growth and the deepening and the, the, the evangelistic power, uh, that is Bible quizzing. So for me, I would, I, I, this is probably overly exaggerated and I recognize that I'm fairly biased here, but I would call it honestly like an eight or a nine on my umbrage scale, like really, really, really high levels of umbrage, because I think the rule book should support our mission. And right now, I think it's actually actively getting in the way of our mission. Um, I remember some past internationals when a district um, brought up that we intermix rules and procedures um, in the rule book. And what if we um, worked to kind of separate those and organize it better? And that comment was largely met with blank stares. And I know you talked, you know, you talked about vectors and you talked about policies. I think you talked about policies versus bylaws and how a mission statement doesn't belong. And um, how, how would you propose like um, helping people kind of understand all the different terms and potential like, and uses that our rule book currently misguidedly serves um, as a way to help them understand and care about um, and have them allow a change to the rule book in a reorganization manner. It's very difficult uh, on a on a conceptual level unless you're talking to people who have spent time in you know authoring books, usually technical books, not especially nonfiction books. Right um, in fiction books, you have much more of a narrative structure that sort of drives the organization of a of a of a book, but in technical documentation in technical writing and in non-fiction book writing for the most part although there are exceptions information architecture is really important especially if you're talking about a reference book right which a rule book is it is it is predominantly a reference not something that you just sit down for a casual Sunday afternoon reading or something like that, right? It, it's it's a it's a reference document. Therefore, the information architecture is dramatically important. But if if a person has never experienced that, right? If they if a person hasn't been a technical writer, if they haven't you know compared you know different documents, one with a high level of information architecture, one with a low level of information architecture, and tried to wade through those things, it's very difficult to explain cognitively at, at a theoretical level uh, the value that comes out of these things, right? You almost sort of have to experience it. It's very similar to quizzing itself right now, where, you know, we can talk to somebody who's never seen quizzing and we can explain quizzing and our passion might bleed through our words and may cause them to be intrigued but they're really going to be kind of, you know, confused a little bit. Not confused. Maybe that's not the right word. They're going to be apprehensive to some degree, a little bit muddled in, in their thinking about what quizzing is until they see it and experience it. And then they can say, oh, OK, yeah, now I get it. Right. Like that's sort of I, I, I think the difference between sort of well-architected material and poorly architected material. But if you don't experience it, it's very difficult to convey those ideas. When I was in high school, I worked at a summer camp um, and I was working for the camp maintenance manager who handled the upkeep and condition of the camp. And his workshop was fairly disorganized, um, but he knew where everything was. 
And one afternoon when I didn't have any work tasks, but it was still during work time, I decided to organize the workshop. Why wouldn't you want all the paint together, all the tools together, all the nails together, all the rags together, everything. And when I was done, he was like, oh, thank you. This looks great. Now can you show me where everything is? Because I don't <laughs> know where anything is anymore. <laughs> right. So to people who are very um, knowledgeable and accustomed to the rule book, but maybe aren't going to nerd about it to the level that we are and want to organize it and change and um, change where stuff is, how would you convince them that like um, for a while you may not know where everything is, but in the long term this is going to be better? I don't think you can. I mean, I think that's sort of the 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 problem. I think there. I think you might be able to win people over because of the side benefits that come from a well-organized rulebook and especially a metadata tagged rulebook. Uh, but the actual inherent value of a singular document A versus a singular document B is going to be, it's, it's, I don't think you really gain the value until you again, learn where everything is, right? Like if you've got an office that's totally messed up, totally messy, and but you kind of know, well, this paper is probably in this stack over here, and then you completely reorganize your office, you clean it, you organize it. Yeah, there's going to be a period of time where it's like, oh, wait, where is that now kind of stuff? But if you're consistent about keeping things organized, then fairly quickly, you get to a point where you're never looking for anything. You simply know where things are, which even in a messy universe where there's a lot of, you know, disorder, and yet you know where everything is, you still don't actually really know where everything is. You're, you're actually just sort of fooling yourself into knowing where all the nails are. You, you just know where some of the nails are or most of the nails are, but you can't do a complete inventory to know like, yeah, we really actually don't have that particular nail because I can't for sure, you know, grep the entire, you know, workstation area and find those nails. So ultimately, like, I think the way you convince people is around the idea of the meta values that come out of the organization. The fact that I can say, okay, with a simple bit of software, I can create for you a rule book that is nothing but the rules layer, or I can create a rule book that has rules and examples and commentary or rules and examples, but no commentary or whatever you want. Right. And I can do that with a click of a button via software because of how we've organized the content of the rule book and so forth. Um, and that's kind of neat. And then you can also say, well, because of the fact that software can parse this information and can understand the context um, around the different parts of the rulebook, I can now integrate the rulebook into either CBQZ or QuizSage or any number of other pieces of software. And there's kind of some, actually not kind of, there's some tremendous value around being able to do that. Quizmasters can hit a button and say, show me all the rules that relate to the situation I'm currently in, whether it's a situation question or not. And boom, presto, here you go. Here's only the slice of the rule book that actually pertains to what you're dealing with right now. And it allows for more rapid finding of rules that, that are related to the situation you're dealing with. Then once that's done, you let people kind of gel and solidify on this newer, you know, well-organized rule book. And it may not take very long. I mean, it may take just a few months. It may take just a season. It kind of depends on, on how frequently people are, are referencing the rule book and looking at the rule book, but pretty quickly, they're going to be, there's going to be this sort of almost you, it, it, a subconscious, like 
if I'm looking at the rule book, I can very quickly just find what I need, right? I don't know where it is because I'm not familiar with it, but I can find it quickly regardless. And then once they get used to that, you have them compare to the older rulebook. And that's kind of the, the important last step, right? Because ultimately you find stuff fairly quickly because of the architecture and then you grow to recognize the structure of the overall document. And then after you get used to it, you go back and say, well, try to do the same thing with the older document. And it's at that point, people are like, whoa, there's this huge difference. Like, yeah, I never realized how painful the old way was until I had the new way and actually got used to it. And and so it's almost like you have to convince somebody after they've tried it out for a year. Sure. But I think talking about it helps like people can see that, you know, in the future. So I, I think it helps to admit that it will be um, for people who know where everything is in the rule book now and are very familiar with it. It will be different and harder to find stuff for a very short time in the future. And then it will be like nothing ever happened and it's way better. Yes. Well, and and most important of all, and this is really the, the key thing, for people who are familiar with the rule book, it will really not cost them very much, right? More to look things up in a better organized rule book. They will be slightly slower. Um, and then again, it'll be a short period of time, but it really won't be a substantial cost for them. It will be a massive cost savings for people who are new to quizzing to be able to come in and understand and to achieve higher levels of knowledge mastery about quizzing faster. And that will be a huge benefit to the growth and the quality of quizzing as a program overall. I, I completely agree. Um, as an example, this was many years ago, but PNW had a large number of new officials, scorekeepers, answer judges, quiz masters. And we realized that the rule book's kind of big. What is it, like 25 pages? And there's a ton of stuff in there that a new official just shouldn't ever have to care about. Um, and so I can't remember if I asked someone if they had the idea, but we made a slimmed down rule book only for new officials, and it was like five pages. Um, and it just goes to show like, if you, if you are able to know the role and the scope that you care about and it can be presented with just that, it's very it's much more, um, not appealing, but it's much more approachable and understandable when you don't have to like wade through like what's a bracket and like, oh, we should have backup scorekeepers at internationals and stuff like that. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, Scott, talk to me about context. All right. I am a relatively recent convert to this, but my first level of umbrage is context existing at all. And this is specifically for um, interrogative multiple answer situation questions. Um, I don't think context is necessary. Um, I don't really care if a quizzer goes out of context because a quizzer has to be not incorrect. And that will prevent them from just cycling through guesses of what they need to get. Um, but if a quizzer jumps on Jesus and quotes me nine occurrences of Jesus from other material and quotes them well, and then quotes the one in context, I don't really care that you were in other places. Um, now if I ask a, you know, who was by the sea of Galilee? Well, sure. You can't rotate through, um, proper names because the first one that's not correct, I'm going to treat as incorrect information. Um, but I don't think context really helps us. Um, most of the time, if someone goes into a different context, um, they're either going to give you incorrect information or they are never going to recover to the right context. But in those rare cases where they do recover to the right context and haven't given you incorrect information, I totally want to count the quizzer right. 
I do think that context is necessary on uh, key verse questions, so finishes and quotes limited to the verses in question, and same for reference questions, CBRs would be the verse, and chapter references would be five verses up or down. I haven't thought super deeply about chapter reference questions. Um, it's probably fine to have the context be the chapter on chapter reference questions. That would probably make more sense. Um, and then my second, so umbrage level, maybe a four. I don't think it really hurts stuff because most of the time when a quizzer goes out of context, I use, like unless I know for sure you've said a bunch of stuff out of context and I can definitively call you out of context, I'm just gonna, if I can't do that, I'm just going to wait for your 30 seconds to elapse because if you don't get the correct answer, I can just say you're wrong for not giving a correct answer and we don't have to get, get into the subjective did they say enough to take them out of context or not. So most of the time, um, I don't think it, it matters a ton. But to me, it's complication for the quiz master, and it could be simplified a lot if we didn't have context. So umbrage level four. Do you want to jump in, Griffin, before I hit the second yeah, bullet? Yeah, I do. So for me, so I totally agree with everything that you that you said, um, except for your umbrage level, but I'll come back to that in a second. So I completely agree. I think quizzing would be improved if we got rid of context entirely, with the exceptions that you're talking about. Obviously, quotes need to be within the verse, uh, finish the verses and so forth. Uh, chapter verse reference has to be the single verse. I would, uh, I would personally say, you know, chapter reference, the context is the chapter. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, and all of that, I completely agree with you. I would argue that for, well, at least for me, my umbrage level is higher than a four. And I would say that my umbrage level is probably like a six or a seven, but it has nothing to do with the actual quizzers. It has to do with the cognitive load on the quiz master and the variance of quiz master from room to room based on the, the years of experience, not, not even years of experience, but skill level, let's say of the quiz master. Right. So the idea being that like, I don't want, like if, if you have a scale of one to 10, where one is, you know, they're just barely an okay quiz master and 10, they're like Scott. Right. Um, so like 10 is like the, like the upper echelon of, of super high quality quiz masters in all respects. And one is they're not bad, but you know, they could do a lot better, you know, kind of stuff. And then of course the scale goes negative. You can actually have a bad quiz master, right? Um, there are ways to go negative, but I'm just focusing on the positive side. So let's say you have, have a quiz master between quiz master skill level capability level between one and 10. Compare a quiz master who's at, say, a five to a quiz master who's at a nine, right? Um, or a, let's say a four versus a nine, right? Um, two numbers that I'm mostly picking arbitrarily, but just as an example here, right? So a quiz master at a nine, if a quizzer starts going, starts to say some things that might be out of context, that quiz master is using CBQZ and has the material search, uh, uh, open and is already starting to look things up, right? They probably have most of the material memorized, if not all the material memorized themselves. So they sort of already know if the, quiz, uh, if the quizzer's falling out of context or not. But ultimately, they're, they're typing away, right? As the quizzer's going through their 30 seconds, they're, they're in real time looking at what the quizzer is saying and cognitively following. And they're handling all this well because they're a nine, right? But a quiz master who's a four can do a reasonable, adequate job of quiz mastering, but they can't necessarily 
uh, that one, well, not can't, that's not the right word. They're not going to be as skilled as a nine at following context through, which means you're opening yourself up to situations where potentially a nine quiz master is more accurate than a four. And certainly that's going to be true beyond say a one or a two once you get north of about two or three on this scale theoretically there is going to be a difference between say a one and a nine but generally once you get past a, like a, a two or a three on this scale i would hope that all quiz masters are ruling the same but they are um they're just more effective at say their pacing their style their their command of the room all these sort of not esoteric but uh, other parts of of that of the quiz uh, the quiz mastery experience and so for me like the context ex existing in the way that it exists right now sort of make me have a high umbrage level because the quiz master's job is so radically different between say a four and a nine does that make sense yes it does okay. um and i think that is helpful to think about that your umbrage level just in a vacuum might not be very high but um, considering all that a quiz master has to handle, the fact that they have to parse out um, context just unnecessarily adds to the load and probably um, brings down the quality of the rest of their quiz mastering. It does. It does indeed. So my next level, my next bullet point is, you know, context is defined as um, context shall be limited to five verses before or after the verse, um, which we take to mean not inclusive of the verse. So kind of an 11 verse context, five verses up and down, not including this verse. But then what do we do about, say, a situation question where the quotation starts in verse one, continues to verse two, the, um, the pronoun in question might be in verse one, and the clarification of the pronoun is two verses previous in a different chapter. What's context? Um, and so just the lack of definition around that. Like if you want to have context... Um, and have it be some five verses before or after kind of thing. I think there's a much better way to def to objectively define what context is. Now, everyone seems to just use the non-inclusive way, but that's not written down anywhere. And um, Griffin hates tribal knowledge and applications of the rulebook. So I imagine your umbrage level with that sort of implementation would be high. It is. It is. I I think we all rule about the same way. Um, so my umbrage level is not, say, an eight, but it's definitely like a, a six, um, six or seven, because exactly like what you said, the tribal knowledge thing, practically, it probably isn't, it shouldn't be that high, but I don't like I don't like tribal knowledge. I like the experiment that your your wife came up with of the idea of like, can you take the rule book without explanation, hand it to somebody, and they basically come up with quizzing as you operate quizzing. And I think in this case, uh, it is it is in, is very much a tribal knowledge thing rather than a documented thing. So my umbrage level is higher than than normal. Yeah, if we if we had non quizzing people implement this rule book and stage a meet, we would all be very embarrassed about what happened. <laughs> Yes, we would be deeply uncomfortable very quickly. And I say this as someone who has directly helped like change and add things to the rule book. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so my next couple are actually fairly small um, in terms of my umbrage level, but they're kind of nitpicky. Um, but, you know, hey, I love being nitpicky and I know Scott does too. So in the rule book, it says the following, quote, when an answer is in question different than what is on the card, the quizmaster will discuss with the answer judge. However, it is the answer judge who will determine the accuracy of its content and make a ruling 
accordingly, unquote. This isn't how we actually do quizzing. Um, so it, I think it's the way we used to do quizzing uh, a really long time ago, like back in the, say, 80s and early 90s and so forth. But I, we haven't done quizzing like this in a very long time. Uh, so then the, the sort of the next line down there, the head judge also shall be the spokesperson for the group. Uh, and in my experience, quizmasters are always the ones who state rulings. So for me, I'm kind of looking at these rules going, these are kind of legacy things that are still in the rule book and should probably be removed. Uh, nobody really follows them. But again, if we were to take the rule book and hand it to somebody who hadn't seen and experienced quizzing, they would do things much differently than how we do things in practice. So for me, my umbrage level on these is like a, I don't know, a three or something, mostly just because and even three is probably too high, um, but it's mostly just because I hate cruft and I want things to be kind of clean and, and well organized. I agree. I remember you were talking to me about some quiz mastering situation um, and an answer judge who was unclear on some rules in the rule book and what you were supposed to do. And I was like, oh, you're supposed to do this. And then I kept Googling, not Googling, I kept searching answer judge in the rule book. And I was like, wait, this other part says that you should have done this. Oh, wait, this other part says you should have done this. And I was like, oh, this is terrible. It just mentions answer judges in their authority or not authority or spokesmanship or not spokesmanship, like four different places. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's like, which one do you pick and how do you interpret them and how do you merge them together? I think that's very tribal uh, in terms of how we do it. And I, and I believe that we're consistent, right? You know, I've, I've quiz mastered it at, at, uh, internationals at great, at, or at great West. And obviously at the district level, uh, I haven't quiz mastered at other districts. Well, no, no, that's not true. I've quiz mastered at world, although that's an entirely different rule book. Um, but, uh, in my experience, we're, we're handling these situations fairly consistently, but we're definitely not in, you know, one accord with the actual stated rules. Yeah. And, one hill that I will die on is I don't care who is the spokesman or who has authority. I don't want to have some adversarial relationship with my answer judge or quiz master. I, I think that it's a great idea at interdistrict meets to mix the districts of the officials at the table because you have different different perspectives. They come from districts who might not do things 100% the same way. But at the end of the day, I just want to get the right ruling. And I'm not I'm not, I don't feel like I'm warring with my other officials. So like there have been times where I didn't agree with the other official and we would just talk about it to the point that we were both comfortable with the ruling that the table would make. And it's not like one of us was like, well, I got authority. So this is what's happening, you know? And I just, I, I think the rule will kind of like, it, it is helpful to say like, like who does the buck stop with? Cause that's necessary. But in practice, I don't think that you need to have that mentality at all. I agree that in practice you shouldn't, but I think sometimes if you end up being assigned to a table as one of the officials and there's another official who is flat out wrong and is and is misinterpreting the rule book and is somewhat belligerent about it, you do need to have the ability of just saying, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, you're just wrong. And I'm, I'm ultimately, I don't, I want to come to a mutually agreed conclusion but if we can't get there, we have to resolve this. Um, like, like we can't keep debating this. We have to come to a decision. And ultimately, uh, that's why I think there there does need to be like the, you know, so-and-so is ultimately the person who has the authority. Hopefully it doesn't get to there because, I mean, when you get to that situation, you know, lots of bad things are there, right? Like, like you, as an official, you should be approaching the table with uh, under a sense of humility 
and a sense of like, I don't know the rule book. I should look everything up. You know, if, there, if there's a, if there's a, a question or a debate on something, look it up in the rule book and actually, you know, look at the black and letter, black and white letter of the rules and make a ruling there rather than just saying, well, I do it this way and our district does it this way. Therefore, that's how I'm ruling. Um, but even if there, if, if that person is there and is, is kind of belligerent like that, you, you have to say, well, do they ultimately have the final word or not? And if they do, then okay, you, you accept it because then you're at least dealing with a, it's, it's wrong, but at least we're making decisions and moving on kind of thing. Yeah. And perhaps I'm just lucky that I've never been in a situation where I thought, um, like I'm the quiz master and I have an answer judge who is objectively incorrect, but they have the authority. So that's the ruling that's going to happen. Um, I remember one time that I disagreed with my answer judge, but it was on a subjective, you know, ruling around context or correct or incorrect or something of that nature. And it was actually John Van Schenk. Um, and he was the answer judge. And at the end of it, we talked about it, both made our cases and still didn't, didn't agree. But then I announced his, the, the ruling that he wanted as the tables ruling. Cause it didn't matter to anyone who was like trumping who we had like talked it out. It was a subjective area of the rule book and that's how we were going to move forward. If it was a case, I don't know what I would do if, if um, an answer judge was just hammering on something that I knew that they were objectively wrong about, because I, I, I would make it very difficult <laughs> for them to move forward with it. I mean, I know that there have been times when I'm quiz mastering with an answer judge and I'm unsure about a ruling and I'll turn to them and say, what do you think? Because I don't want to influence them with what I think. I already know what I think. I want to know what you think. Um, it's completely separate from what I think. Um, but I've just never gotten into one of those situations. Yeah, I, I've been in a situation where the so I was quiz master, the answer judge uh, had when we had the rule book, we could look it up in the rules. And the answer judge was quite literally saying, I I because we had a disagreement about a, a, an interpretation of the rules. We looked it up. I literally pointed to a section a, a paragraph in the rules and said, you know, there it is. This is this is how I'm interpreting just like this, right? Where my finger is pointed, those words in black and white. And and he basically said, yeah, but that's not how we do it in our district. Our district does it this other way. So this is how I'm ruling. And I was just like, this is nuts. This is totally wrong. This should not happen. But I felt, well, according to the rule book, the answer judge is the person with the final authority. So as the quiz master, I then announced the ruling as a table ruling, even though I was absolutely confident that it was not correct. Um, but uh, yeah, and I didn't feel good about it, but that's what I did. I mean, if it was me, I'd be super petty and maybe not super petty, but I would make I would make it very public, right? Either after the probably after the quiz, but just let a lot of other officials and CQLT members know, like this is the ruling that happened, and just present it. And if it is objectively wrong, then they have that information. You know, I don't think there's any need to protect a fellow official. You know, I think we all want to have the right ruling. And if you thought it was objectively wrong but couldn't do anything about it in the moment, you know, at least make it known what happened you know yeah fair enough i i i i believe i talked to at least two of the three coaches that were involved in that quiz privately um just one-on-one -on -one. i didn't want to i didn't i don't want to embarrass any official i don't want to embarrass anybody publicly um so i talked privately one-on-one -on -one with i at least two, I, i'm pretty sure two of of the three coaches and i also uh, talked to somebody who was on the cqlt at the time about the ruling and, and about the situation again privately 
um, just to say like, you know, this happened, here's how we resolved it. I just want you to know, you know, like I'm, I'm not saying like we should, you know, go back and redo the quiz or anything crazy. I don't even think it really had, I don't think it influenced the outcome, although I could be wrong. Um, but it was really more like, you should know this happened. And I think we should be more careful about who we select for our officials in the future. Yeah. I mean, I remember a case where I was quiz mastering and um, quizzers came into my quiz from a different quiz and told me about a, a, a ruling that they had had. And I was like, oh, if that happened the way that you said it did, I think that quiz master is dead wrong. And my, my answer judge kind of privately to me was like, hey, do you think you should be saying them about, about another quiz master? And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I, I said if it was related to me as you have related to me, because I mean, people will kind of consciously or unconsciously, you know, spin it just a little bit. Right. right. Um, but I was like, if, if it was presented the way, in the way that it happened, I think they're dead wrong. And I'm not saying that this person's like a dumb person or a bad person. I'm just saying like, I think the ruling was wrong. And I don't, I don't think I should have to hide that. Well, and this kind of brings up a tangential point that, I mean, this does absolutely does not belong in a rule book at all, but I think it definitely, there, there needs to be sort of like a, an official's best practices document or something philosophy and things that need to go in there. I, I think there needs to be an ex, a stated awareness and officials need to remind themselves of this truism that basically if you're a quiz master at a high level meet, actually forget high level. If you're a quiz master at any meet that is of any sort of substantial size, it is very likely you will make at least one mistake during the meet. Like, it is very likely that you will make at least one ruling. That's not right. Like, we don't want that. Well, obviously, we're going to all try for, you know, as, as, as accurate and correct rulings as possible. But there's a lot going on and mistakes are going to happen. You know, we strive for perfection, but we don't get there. I think there's a lot of quiz masters. And it's not really just a quiz masters. I think there's a lot of officials who have this weird kind of like, well, I can't admit that I made a mistake because it calls into question all my other rulings. I have to be, you know, flawless in all things, or therefore I am flawed in all things. And rather, I think it's better to say, no, actually, I, I make mistakes, you know, fairly frequently. I want to be told of those mistakes so I can get even better than I already am. Absolutely. Like, I know that there are districts that, like, teach their quizzers not to challenge because they think it's disrespectful. And so the one year that I quiz mastered at internationals, I prefaced every prelim with, please look for opportunities to challenge because I will mess up and I want you to help me keep this fair for everyone. Cause I wanted to like rip away that stigma as much as possible. I was like, you're not being disrespectful unless like your tone is super awful or something, which I don't know if I've ever encountered, you know, but like, I want you looking for ways that I did not apply the rulebook correctly because it will happen. <laughs> right. Absolutely. All right. Well, what do you have next up? Let's see. Oh, again or more. So the, the rulebook says on an interrogative or multiple answer question, if all the information in the answer has been given, but the quizzer is missing information in the question, the quiz master will say more. And I, this was added at some point in the last five years. I don't like the distinction being made between the question portion and the answer portion, especially of an interrogative or multiple answer question. To me, it's all material and it seems like undue burden to put on the quiz master to say like, oh, well, they've gotten everything in the question, but not the answer. So I'm allowed to say more versus they're missing information in both. So I'm not allowed to say more or again. It just seems bizarre to me. Like, 
Um, if you want the again and a more prompts at all, which by the way, I don't think are necessary, I think should go away. I think the quiz master should not be allowed to say again or more on any question type. But if you, if we're going to keep them, this, this distinction between the question and the answer to me seems arbitrary, unnecessary, and an undue burden on the quiz master. And my umbrage level might be six, seven. I completely agree. And in fact, my umbrage level is, yeah, like a six or a seven straight up there with you. All right. Well, so my next one up is a super nitpicky tiny thing. Um, but there is a section in the rule book that talks about a quiz master being replaced. Uh, so, you know, if, if there is a need to replace a quiz master, uh, there's reference on, on how to go about it, but there's nothing in the rule book about how to replace an answer judge or a scorekeeper. And I'm sort of wondering, well, should we just change that to be, should an official be replaced or, uh, maybe just drop it or I, I don't know. It just seems, it seems weird. It's kind of a crufty thing. I don't think it's necessary. So at internationals, not the, the internationals of this season, but the internationals of the preceding season, um, I was a quiz master in room, uh, was I two? I forget. Um, yeah, I think it was in two. I forget. I forget what room I was in, but in whatever. Um, but I was a quiz master in one of the rooms and it was a, you know, a couple days in and I got, um, you know, during a, a timeout or something, uh, in the middle of a quiz, I got a text message that there was an emergency that happened, uh, with a local church. I, in, in addition to all the quizzing things that I do, I'm also the, uh, chairman of the board of directors for the Pacific Northwest Association of the Church of God. And one of our pastors in one of our churches had, um, lost her husband. Uh, he, he, uh, uh very unexpectedly, uh, passed away. Uh, and, uh, she's, she and he, were and are uh, very close to us. And, and I got a word that, you know, he had, he had passed away. And so uh, I, I kind of sat back all of a sudden scanned the room really fast. Cause I was kind of like, I, I have to leave. I have to make some phone calls. Um, this is kind of a big deal. And I kind of was scanning the room first to look for Zach. Um, and cause Zach was kind of moving from room to room to room. And he just happened to not be in my room at that particular time. And my eye, I kind of looked over and I saw, uh, Lana over on the side. I'm like, Hey, can you, can you step in for me? And she was really awesome. She was really gracious. She's like, absolutely go for it. So I, you know, I took the rest of the quiz off. She handled it perfectly. I was able to go outside and make the phone calls. Like these sorts of things happen and we don't necessarily need portions of the rule book to, uh, you know, take care of it. So I don't know, again, my umbrage level on this one is like a 1.5. Um, but again, it's like, if you take a bunch of these 1.5s and you add them up, maybe all together, they're kind of like an umbrage level of four, just because of the clutter that they have in the rule book. So I've got a question for you, Griffin. Mm -hmm. I am quite uh, exacting and critical of officials, but even at internationals, I don't know if there's been many quiz masters that I would rot that I think rise to the level of you just shouldn't have been there like at all. But in that scenario, let's say I'm a coach internationals and I think a quiz master is just like terrible for some reason, like like something execution related. Right. Mm. Um, do you think that there should be some forum to like not make a proposal or, but like sit, like provide information to the meet director in some structured manner? Um, or not. 
I don't know that it needs to necessarily, I mean, it, you could, I'm, I'm not against the idea of having some sort of structure in place for that, but I don't know that it's, it's particularly necessary for a couple of reasons. I mean, again, it just about never happens. And if it does happen, it's a signal of massive failure of planning uh, around who you're selecting and who you're vetting to be an official. So, I mean, theoretically, as long as there isn't a massive, massive failure there, uh, then it, it, it isn't going to happen, but let's say it does. And there, you know, you're the coach and you're in that situation and you're like, this quiz master is being belligerent. They're being rude. They're, they're exhibiting the worst sort of behavior. Uh, they are not ruling accurately. They are, you know, they're causing quizzers to break down and cry on purpose. Like, what are you going to do? Right. You're going to, potentially during a timeout or maybe between questions, you're going to have a quick conversation with the quiz master, probably, maybe. Um, if that doesn't go anywhere, then you're going to go talk to the meet director. Um, and I think like, like that's just sort of like, uh, that that's what you're going to do. Or, or you're, I, or you're going to talk to the quiz master. If that doesn't go anywhere, you get one or two other coaches and you talk to the quiz master. And if that doesn't go anywhere, then maybe you go and talk to the meet director or something like that. Right. But there's, there's sort of ways that sort of, we would all sort of approach this thing. Um, but again, I'm, I'm totally not opposed to the idea of having something more structured in the rule book for it. Sure. I mean, the scenario that I'm thinking of the quiz, the quiz master was, anticipating jumps and every w interrogative um the w portion was about a two-syllable read mm. um and so those those are things like unrelated to decorum right? right but like completely poor as far as execution of the quiz mastering role and very consistently poor you know and i just i didn't know like what to do because i was like sitting there in the front row and i could see the light box and i was like oh you're just anticipating jumps on specialties and not on other questions you know yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's always, you know, I'm not to trying to, you know, armchair quarterback, um, what you were experiencing, but I think, you know, if I was in that situation and I had, you know, clarity of forethought and all that kind of stuff, I suppose I would probably call a timeout and try and talk to the quiz master. And if that didn't really go anywhere, you know, I, I, I could see an escalation to the meet director. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, here's the other thing. I mean, let's say you escalate it to the meet director. What's the meet director going to do unless he or she has, you know, a couple of backup quiz masters at the ready who are, you know, fully vetted and ready to go. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be sort of a hard thing to resolve in that, in that specific scenario. So that, I mean, that, again, that goes back to the, the, the notion of like, it's critically important to vet your officials before you have uh, a meet. So like internationals, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had six quiz masters, six answer judge, uh, scorekeepers, and they were great. And I vetted them, well, I don't know, like a month prior to the meet or two weeks Maybe it was two or three weeks prior to the meet or something like that. We actually had a session where we got together on Zoom and we ran a couple of practice quizzes and I gave them notes and it wasn't a particularly big deal, but it was this idea of like, I just want to make sure that there's a basic level of quality. Um, and I think that's, that's critically important because once you get, well, and of course, being that it was internationals, I also had, I think, three qualified quiz masters, uh, you know, as backups that I could have called on if any one of the quiz masters, you know, if their, if their internet went out or for whatever reason, like I had somebody I could hot sub in, 
Uh, and so, but I mean, I just, that's just part of running a meet uh, effectively, I think. Um, going back to my scenario, I, in fact, this was a room three quiz master. I knew that, um, there was a problem getting enough quiz masters for the meet at all. And so the room four quiz master was kind of a fill in at the last minute from the host district. Mm. And so I, I kind of knew that there probably wasn't any backup and the room four quiz master was actually worse. Um, but I wasn't going to say anything because I knew that they were a last minute fill in, you know? And yeah, but I mean, that's where, that's where feedback is useful, right? So like, I mean, if I'm quiz mastering, a, a coach calls a timeout, talks to their team for, you know, 20 seconds and then turns around and talks to me for a little bit, you know, privately one-on-one as best as you can in that scenario and is providing me some, some feedback. That's, that's helpful. I, I think that's a good thing. I would, I would want that if a, is it, if a coach thought I was, you know, messing something up. I, th- I think so, but I feel like we're rare because there often is feedback that is sent to the internationals coaches after internationals. And I don't know what is done with it. And I kind of get yeah. the sense that people view me as, too um, persnickety or judgmental, uh, you know, when I, when I, when I see what I think is not good quiz mastering. Yeah, you may be right. You may be right. <laughs> I mean, there was a case where, you know, the rule book says that if you observe a foul happen that was not called, you can bring it to the um, attention of the officials. Um, but in that scenario, a foul cannot be awarded, right? Right. Um, and that happened in an internationals. And I brought it to the attention of the quiz master at a timeout and got a lot of attitude from the scorekeeper about it, who happened to be the quiz master's spouse. You know, <laughs> I was like, this is objectively a foul by the rule book that you missed. And I got attitude, which was, you know, total personal defensiveness. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was that was more important to them than actually being correct. And, yeah, you know. and that's sad. That's just really sad because I mean the the goal of the I mean we're we're officials for the 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 point of the quizzers. We're officials to sustain and grow and support the mission of quizzing, not our own egos and being right all the time. That's just yeah, it's totally misplaced. All right, what's your next one? Let's see here. Oh, this one's super tiny, but quizzed out quizzer that gets removed cannot come back in. And I will lump in the a subbed out quizzer has to sit out for three questions. To me, like, I don't think the rule book should be legislating how a coach manages their team. I would imagine that both of these rules um, are intended to um, have the coach um, have all of their quizzers in. Like, if it's a five-person team, like, have that fifth quizzer fifth quizzer in right um and if the quiz out quizzer remain um gets subbed out don't sub them back in for that fifth quizzer on question 20 just in case there might be a bonus but to me like it might be well-intentioned but i don't think the rule book should be like telling a coach how to manage their own team i think these substitution rules are they're unnecessary there's stuff that the officials table has to keep track of and i am fine with a coach subbing in and out however they desire um I don't, I don't think that that should be mandated. Yeah, totally agreed. So uh, what would your umbrage level be on this one? It would probably be a two or a three because I think it's like it's rare to find five-person teams at all outside of internationals maybe. Um, so I don't think it is very impactful, but I think it's useless as a rule. <laughs> yeah, I'd call it a three for myself. But yeah, I, I, I agree completely. All right, so my next one is kind of a... Um, it's a it's a tiny little thing, but I just kind of, it's it's actually not really even a an umbrage thing. It's more just sort of a thought experiment. Um, so actually, you know what? I'm going to suspend mine, and why don't you do your last one, and then I'll come back to mine since mine's really more of a thought experiment. Um, the deliberate attempt one. 
Yeah. All right. So deliberate attempt is made to forfeit a question. So I think that this is um, – it's probably, again, a nice – thought to add to the rule book, right? Why would you want a team jumping if their only intention is to err on it, right? We can't want that. Um, I think that that is a fine intention, but I think in practice it is impossible to implement this because you cannot know what a team is doing. Now at the district level, um, maybe you can read into things like, oh, this team is ahead by 80 points in the last question and it's their worst quizzer and they jump on a half syllable. Like, of course they're trying to forfeit the question. Um, but again, I think that that is dangerous territory. If the quiz master is reading into things that they happen to know about the quizzer and the team and the situation, I think that's rife with problems. Um, but once you get to the internationals level, like we're all jumping on a syllable and a half on normal questions and a, a syllable to a one syllable on specialties how can you say that you know that a deliberate attempt was made to forfeit a question? I just don't – I think it's a problematic thing to have in the rule book that a quiz master is like, oh, I have to watch out for a deliberate attempt to be made to forfeit a question. Um, the rule book already has – it's not really a nuclear option because it's – the penalty is not that harsh. But it has kind of the catch-all where anything against the spirit of quizzing, the official table can levy a foul for. And I think that that is plenty, right? If um, – you think that a team is doing something or a quizzer or a coach is doing something that is against the spirit of quizzing, you have full authority to just, you know, call a foul on all five members of the team, four members of the team, what have you. Um, but I just think the specific deliberate attempt is made to forfeit a question is very problematic to implement if, um, even if we wish we could, if we knew exactly what a coach or a quizzer's intent was. Yeah. Well, what's your, what's your umbrage level on this? Uh, I don't know, maybe a four or a five, which kind of feels high because it almost never comes up and is almost never utilized. But I just, I have a growing, again, hatred's too strong. I have a growing dislike for stuff in the rule book that almost never happens and is mostly useless and just adds stuff that we have to like read and think about as quiz masters and it's presented to new coaches. Like, can you imagine a new coach reading this? They're like, what the heck new, deliberate attempt is made to forfeit a question. I'd never do that. You know, like don't tell me I shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. It just seems weird. So maybe a four or five. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, you know, a quiz master shall assign a foul. If anyone, any one quizzer is physically violent against another quizzer, like what? Like, um, hang on a moment, right? We've got bigger, bigger fish to fry. If, if there's, if we're dealing with that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. it's interesting. So I, you know, philosophically and generally speaking, I, I agree with you. I think my umbrage level is probably like maybe a three or four, the same idea of, of like, it's just cruft in the rule book that, that doesn't necessarily need to be there. It would be interesting though. I, I, I know Jeremy is list, you know, going to listen to this episode. It'll be interesting to see his reaction to what we're talking about here, because I think he actually likes this rule existing in the rule book. So it'll be interesting. I I don't know that he likes it. I know that he's used it. And I like I actually think that his his arguments are decently compelling, but I still think at the end of the day it's just it's problematic to have. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I certainly I, I mean it's I, I certainly completely agree with your your point that this situation specifically is covered by the general case of anything against the spirit. And so it's just added detail that doesn't need to be there at all anyway. So Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So my last 
uh, last sort of thing here is less about a rule umbrage thing and more about a thought experiment. And that comes down to the eight-year material rotation. We have this eight-year material rotation that by and large has remained pretty consistent for decades. Um, there's been some slight changes, you know, the Philemon thing. But generally speaking, we've been, you know, sticking to this eight-year material rotation. So I'm kind of thrown out there as kind of a um, thought experiment. Why? Why eight, right? We we like to make the joke of, um, you know, which, which of the Gospels doesn't get any love, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but why? Why is that the case? Uh, is it truly to the benefit of quizzing to only have an eight-year material rotation? What would be the harm in expanding it to more? Uh, you know, certainly we don't want it to be less than eight because, you know, you could potentially have an, uh, a quizzer involved in the program for eight years and you don't want, you know, somebody to sort of cycle back around to the same material that they've already memorized as, you know, as a quizzer in the, in, in the youth program. Uh, but, but what would be the, I don't know, Scott, what are your thoughts on this? What would be the, the reason not to expand? Hmm. Like, I do think that it should be a minimum number of years because it is an advantage to cycle around and be able to do the same material twice. To me, that's a relatively weak argument. I don't know if it would dictate it. If, like, if I had a super solid reason that I think it should be a four year rotation, I don't think that that would prevent me from, you know, lobbying for that, but I, I don't. Um, and as far as longer, um, I do think that for a while, it was nice because most districts just had questions written for every single year that they reused. Um, because I think the NIV 84 was a version for a very long time, maybe 20 years or so. Um, but because we switched to the ESV for a couple years and then switched back to the NIV, which is now NIV 2011, it has lessened some of that um, gain that you get from repeating years. Um, so... I think that that would be less of a reason to not have more years. Um, I'm not really sure. I don't have strong arguments for or against more years. I, I like that we cycle through narrative and non-narrative material every other year. I think that that's very useful because I have met quizzers that love narrative year and hate epistle year, and I've met quizzers that are the exact opposite. And I think it's useful, right, to have both. Um, we have years that are almost 900 verses, and we have years that are less than 500 verses. And I think it's useful to have both. Um, I've talked about how districts can cycle, where if you have a lot of upperclassmen that are really strong, it kind of crowds out scoring and motivation and the feed positive feedback loop for younger quizzers. But then once that top group graduates it um, you might have weak years scoring wise as a district but you're kind of building up that motivation as that young group gets older so um, I think the differing difficulty levels of material years feed into that as well um, so I think I think as long as you're keeping an every like I guess if you're keeping an every other epistle and non-epistle year or, um, narrative and well you can say either or non um, that could potentially limit it at um, 10, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but so I think that that's useful and I think it is useful to vary lengths. Um, and I know that 
because Jeremy knows far more about the Bible than I do, he talks about, oh, like these stories from the Gospels are repeated in these two different quizzing materials, but this story from the Gospels is included in none of the quizzing materials. So I think it's helpful to, to like look at, I mean, even if we're just scoping to the New Testament, like what are the messages provided and are we kind of missing messages among the eight material years that we um, cover that we could cover in an additional year or two? Yes, indeed. All right. And on that, we've gone a bit over, but we have completed our list of various uh, umbrages that we wanted to take. So after having taken all this umbrage, we shall close the podcast or this particular episode, episode 70s. But we want to remind everybody that if you disagree with any of our umbrage levels or if you disagree with our umbrage taking at all, or if you have different things that you would like to point out of which you take umbrage or think that we should take some level of umbrage, there's lots of taking going on. Maybe we should give umbrage too. Um, if you think we should give umbrage, we would like to hear from you as well. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And of course, if you are on the Bible Quizzing Slack forum, and if you are not, you really should be. Uh, but if you are, you can chat with us in near real time uh, between episodes in the inside-quizzing uh, channel on the forum. And with that, I will say thank you to everyone. And thank you, Scott. I am excited to hear of everyone's umbrage with our umbrage. And do not take our um, long-windedness about these topics as any indication that we know what we're talking about. So please tell us where we have no idea what we're talking about. And thank you for listening, everybody. 